We return for now to the book of Acts, chapter 19. We began last week. We begin now today in verse 11, verse 11 to 20. This is on page 928 of your pew Bibles if you need them. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, I'll bet, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, we have mentioned before that Acts doesn't mention every detail that happens. It covers many years of ministry activity, not all of which is noteworthy. Uh, It's the task of the historian, like Luke, to to whittle things down to the pertinent highlights, which is what keeps the book interesting. And, And Paul has been the main character, humanly speaking, of this book for, for a while now, right? And, and the spotlight left him only briefly, a couple of weeks back, uh, when we got introduced to Apollos when he was in Ephesus. Uh, but Ephesus is quickly going to become a hub of the early church. In fact, we saw last week that Paul ultimately spent two years ministering in this city, but we get far more detail in today's passage and, and next week as well about what actually this looked like. Uh, this week and next will give us a lot of detail about Paul's time in Ephesus and more detail than we got about his time in Corinth. Uh, last week, we, we walked with Paul into Ephesus. Uh, this is a town he had been aiming to reach for many months, and we saw Paul cleaning up the small mess he found there left by Apollos, and we talked about that. It's almost like Apollos was only introduced to shed more light on Paul. It's only to support the other character, right? So Paul is still the main human character in Acts. But Paul's first duty in Ephesus was to turn Apollos' followers onto the actual main character of this book, which is the Holy Spirit. And as we discussed, depending on whether you believe me or John Calvin, Paul may have rebaptized these guys, and then they received the Holy Spirit when Paul laid his hands on. So that happened early. Uh, Early on, right after Paul arrived, he straightened out some of these disciples. We can assume he hooked up with Priscilla and Aquila again and some of the other believers. And and we got just a glimpse last week of Paul's continued ministry here, how he had preached for three months in the synagogue only to be pushed out by some enemies. And today we get to see some of what happened over the next few months. So, So we saw that Paul's now preaching in what I think is the first rented church space recorded in Scripture. 
Uh, up until now, we, we've seen the believers meeting in, in public, uh, on hillsides, next to rivers, in the marketplace, in the synagogues, at the temple, in private homes, etc., etc. But now the church in Ephesus begins meeting in the hall of Tyrannus. And again, we don't know who this guy Tyrannus is. He's never mentioned again in scripture. No historical records mention him. Uh, it doesn't seem like it was a public facility. Otherwise, historians might have noted that fact. It sounds more like it was a private facility, the equivalent of us in the Girl Scout building back in the 80s, as I said last week, uh, or two weeks ago, whatever it was. It, it, this is actually kind of cool because, you know, so many churches, especially in the PCA, uh, they use rented space. You know, the Episcopalians, they have beautiful buildings, right? Uh, and some PCA churches have enough money to build nice new buildings, but most of us are just trying to get by. We're not an ancient denomination, so we don't have beautiful ancient stonework buildings with Tiffany stained glass. We don't get that. We get whatever we can find that nobody else wants, uh, meaning we have what Terry Trailer of New Life Glenside once called ugly building righteousness. <laughs> and it sounds like maybe that tradition had a pedigree dating back all the way to Ephesus, so that's kind of nice. Now, as a whole, one assumes this was probably used for lectures, discussions, performances. Uh, it doesn't seem like Tyrannus was a member of the church. Otherwise, I kind of assume Luke would mention that fact. But he's at least willing to let them use the space. And in some manuscripts, not in the oldest ones maybe, but some of the manuscripts include a detail that they were allowed to use it uh, in the middle of the day, like from the hours of 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But what that means is it's the hottest part of the day. And this is pre-air conditioning, obviously. So if that is true, it seems to indicate that Tyrannus gave them use of the building at the times when it was least desirable, the hours he didn't want it, right? This would be cheap rent. It gets hot, he sends his students home for lunch, and then lets this church thing use it. And you could come hear the gospel message if you're willing to sweat it out. But a hot building is not the church's biggest problem, Right? I'm going to eat those words this summer, especially if the AC ever gives out again. <laughs> At least these uh, robes aren't the polyester ones anymore. Anyway, so, so a hot rented space, that wasn't their biggest problem. Uh, nor was this the biggest the problem, uh, I'm sorry, nor was the problem the, the Jewish opposition that Paul had been dealing with. Paul experienced Jewish opposition everywhere he went. That's kind of like his you know, calling card, right? Uh, but they had found this new place to meet. It sounds like the movement was growing in spite of opposition. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have invested so much time. And, and it wouldn't be the case uh, that the entire city ultimately heard about Jesus unless this was all working pretty well. But there are some hiccups that we come across in these two years in Ephesus, and we begin to see that in today's text. So while the building wasn't slowing them down and Paul's enemies didn't slow him down much, the bigger problem for the Ephesian church is not the sweltering building or the opposition. It was spiritual opposition in the form of popularity. Paul became successful, and success breeds imitators. This is true in marketing. It doesn't matter what. And, and, and imitators and pretenders are a distraction from the gospel. And this is a strange problem for Paul to suddenly have, to be too popular. I would love for our church to be popular, uh, that's the whole point of those surveys that, that Dave Green sent out. You know, we're trying to figure these things out. Well, you know, Mitch, many of you answered it. Thank you very much. But in a sense, the survey was designed to find out why we're not more popular, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Paul seems to be dealing with pretty much the opposite problem in Ephesus, right? He, he's almost becoming, dare I say it, cool, right? Uh, Paul's ministry is becoming fashionable. And, and it gets to the point where even his enemies are imitating him. 
So a lot of what we see in this passage is stuff that would very much frustrate and confuse Paul. I imagine it had to drive him crazy. The same way copycats always drive you crazy. We know this even from childhood, don't we? All week I listen to my kids get mad at each other because someone is imitating someone else. Not even necessarily me. You're imitating the other sibling or whatever and thereby ruining the whole game. You know, And in the end, all of us in the house are mad because that's just the way it works. So as we go through this scene piece by piece, uh, there's a lot to see and apply. And we're going to do our best in limited time trying to understand Paul's perspective and more importantly what the Spirit is doing here in Ephesus. Uh, so first off, things start off pretty good. It says in verse 11, uh, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That sounds pretty good. Miracles are cool, right? Extraordinary miracles are even better. Uh, Again, you'll note the careful language that Luke uses. It's not Paul doing the miracles. God is doing the miracles by Paul's hand. Same logic applies to Paul laying hands on the 12 Ephesian disciples last week. It's not the water of baptism or Paul's hands that give the Holy Spirit. That's God's work. Just like salvation or any other miracle. This is going to become an important theme in this passage. Uh, Luke is very clear who the primary actor is here. He clears up the confusion right up front. God is doing these miracles, right? And if we stop there, this would be fine. But then things kind of get a little out of hand, literally. Uh, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. What? Hankies and aprons. I just want to point out that these are very commonplace cloths, okay? And what I mean by that is they're dirty. They are clothes set apart for common use. A hanky, as you are all aware, because you see them in movies and cartoons, uh, is something you use to blow your nose or to wipe sweat off of your brow. Or, if you're Columbo, picking up evidence at a crime scene. (laughs) The handkerchief is a sign of a bygone era before disposable tissues when you generally used a bit of linen to clear all the disgusting excretions from your face and proceeded to store it like a precious jewel in your pocket. (laughs) P.S. Is anybody still doing the hanky thing? I'm sorry if I'm offending some some poor soul out there. (laughs) Sorry, Pat. My grandfather always uh, carried one. My wife uses them to tie her hair. And until COVID brought them back as masks, I thought only my pup-up and Georgia and stagecoach robbers even used them. But um, (laughs) the point is, in their original design, it's kind of gross, right? And Luke is specific that these were the used variety. Not just ones Paul owned, not his clean hankies, the ones that had touched his skin, Now, an apron is maybe a little less gross. The mention of an apron is the only indication we get, really, at this point, that Paul is still probably making tents. An apron is part of the gear you would use in the workshop. So Paul's apparently working probably part-time here with Priscilla and Aquila, again. But the point is that the apron is also a dirty bit of cloth. The purpose of the apron is to keep your regular clothes from getting dirty from the chemicals and the dyes and the grease and the animal fats, whatever else you're using in the shop to waterproof the canvases, right? So in other words, these are not clothes that Paul is handing out with his blessing. Let's just put it that way. They're not cloths he would even keep 
They might not even be cloths he necessarily owns. And while people wouldn't want to steal the shirt off of his back, that would be kind of weird, and he might protest at that point, but neither is Paul distributing these things, right? Instead, it seems like some people are impressed by the miracles, and they're sneaking into the shop at night and taking whatever kind of claws might be laying in, like, the laundry pile or, or fell out of Paul's pocket or resting on a peg next to his workbench. It's kind of weird, It's disgusting, honestly. And the Protestant in me feels like this shouldn't work. (laughs) But Luke says it does. What are we to make of that? Well, clearly, again, this is still God's work, not Paul's. Verse 11 is our ruling principle here. Paul had nothing to do with it. He wasn't even there. People are just grabbing whatever Paul had touched, they're running off with it, and for whatever reason, the reputation of the power dwelling in Paul leads people to do crazy things, and God chooses to honor that and display his power through those items. Hankies, aprons, to put it bluntly, snot and dirt rags. And people are not only healed, it also sends the demons running. That's wild stuff. And how gracious of God to use even superstitious means to glorify himself. But even as God is using these very strange items, I can't help but want to protest. I am a child of the Reformation, right? I can easily look at this and see how this is going to lead to abuses, right? It could easily lead to reducing God's power to certain formulas or holy relics and things of that nature. You know, it's one thing for a woman, as happened in Jesus' ministry, to be healed by touching the hem of his cloak, right? That happened once, but at least in that case, you know, this was Jesus. It's a bigger deal. And Jesus was actually there, and he spoke with her in that, you know, in that story. It's quite another story here for people to be stealing hankies from Paul to go touch their grandma who's possessed and also has COVID to see if it fixes her. All of this runs the risk of reducing the gospel to health and wealth and prosperity nonsense. And the next two verses seem to vindicate my concerns because it sounds like some people did try to piggyback on this stuff and abuse the miraculous power Paul was displaying even through his hankies. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. First off, may I just say, I love how Luke just drops this idea of itinerant Jewish exorcists like that requires no explanation whatsoever. <laughs> like, not there were certain Jewish people who were doing exorcisms, just that, you know, the, the Jewish exorcists that were around, you know, doing this stuff, you know? Like, first off, the fact that we have exorcists walking around at all like that's their job is funny anyway. Also, that they were Jewish, meaning not Christians, but still willing to use the name of Jesus. And then the fact that he calls them itinerant. I find that phrase hilarious. My brother Mike, uh, my older brother, he's a music teacher in Philadelphia school district. And when he started in the school district, he was officially an itinerant music teacher. That was his title. What that meant is he had no permanent school. He actually taught in eight different schools on the five school days. 
Uh, itinerant music teachers in Philly are notorious for teaching in broom closets and boiler rooms because there are no formal music rooms in most of these buildings. They're essentially homeless, right? So someone one year, I, I might have been my sister-in-law, got him one of these antique-style like tin signs you can buy, you know, uh, like something from the 1800s, and it said, no, no vagrants, panhandlers, or itinerant musicians, it said. And it may have included <laughs> various fines for such activities. So the idea of itinerant exorcists is already funny. But exorcists, plural, roaming about, is also kind of funny. Because this isn't some sort of like Old Testament office or something exactly, right? So who knows how this even got started. But Luke writes as though this was a common enough thing that it requires no explanation. So it sounds like part of how the Jews have made inroads in the broader Roman context is by appealing to the mystical. Probably they were more akin to like snake oil salesmen. They come to town, they, they wear funny outfits, they invoke some Hebrew prayers. It sounds really exotic, and maybe they work in some temple-style rituals. And some people, especially Romans, foreigners, feel a sense of calm when they see it. It's, it's a different flavor than what they're used to. It's interesting. It's probably the same kind of reason why Kabbalah is so popular with like certain celebrities today. But there's this power even in the mere formalities of true religion. There's a reason why some people get saved even in churches where false gospels get preached if they're still using the, gospel, the, the word of God. Because even in those false churches, if the word is heard, it still has power. So perhaps it's not so strange that some Jews made a living by performing exorcisms in Roman cities, whatever that looked like. But Luke tells us that some of these guys catch wind of this guy, Paul, doing these things, and these exorcists are not exactly doctrinal purists, right? Uh, they're probably looking, you know, they, they, they're already considered kind of unconventional even in synagogue standards, right? They're not really part of the normal Jewish community. Uh, they're, they're equal opportunity spiritual uh, workers, let's call them. It's a mercenary attitude. They're interested in power and in profit, not truth. So when they hear that Paul is working extravagant wonders using the name of this guy Jesus, well, they want in. Sure. Luke says the most notorious guys involved in this nonsense were the sons of Sceva, which would be a great band name, by the way. These, uh, these seven guys are sons of a high priest, probably a former high priest named Sceva. Uh, they are here in Ephesus claiming to be miracle workers, exorcists, and apparently marketing themselves on their father's name and reputation and position. So they're perfectly comfortable piggybacking on the glory and influence of others. We see this already. And if Paul is working wonders in the name of Jesus, no problem. Let's get in on the action. Whatever works, get her done. And you can only imagine how Paul must feel about these shenanigans. Because you think about this picture for him. People are following him around, picking up his used napkins and whatever the heck else. And you got charlatans wandering the streets trying to exercise demons and poltergeists and who knows what by invoking his name... Or as Luke records, adjuring of the demons using the name of Jesus and Paul. You half expect the demons to start flipping through a dictionary. Like, I don't know what adjure means, but I'm inclined to say no. <laughs> I had to look it up just to be sure. It means to plead or urge or beseech, which you can probably tell from the context. But, you know, it's funny. Luke doesn't even specify what they asked the demon to do. I assume as exorcists they're urging him to leave the possessed individual, but it's almost like they don't even get as far as telling him what to do. They just tack on the names of Jesus and Paul and expect things to just happen, right? 
And Paul has to be exasperated on some level. I, I imagine the persistent superstition of all these people in Ephesus is maddening. I can almost imagine him wishing God would stop doing miracles that encourage this silliness, right? Things are getting out of hand. But suddenly God does exactly that. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is great. I love scripture. We're not, look, we're Christians. We, we don't believe in karma. But, but if you're Paul, this has got to feel kind of good, right? <laughs> For once, the guys getting beat aren't named Paul. <laughs> and when you've been beaten as often as he has, this has to be kind of cathartic. This, this demon-possessed guy beats the ever-loving snot out of seven grown men. I love the verbs. He mastered them. He overpowered them. And apparently stripped every one of them naked and sent them running for their lives through the streets of Ephesus. I probably shouldn't find that as amusing as I do. I'm probably sinning somehow. But the whole scene is outrageous. But why does the name of Jesus not work here? We heard the, the readings this morning. It's by his name that these things happen, right? Why is it that the snot rags of Paul can do more than the name of Jesus in this instance? It's a puzzler because it seems like they should either both work or neither. But God chooses to work through hankies and not by the direct invocation of Jesus' name. And the only reason I can see is these guys have no right to use it. That these guys should know better. Look, these seven sons of Sceva, they are sons of a high priest. They were raised on scripture. They have to know the word of God. And yet they treat his son like a good luck charm. And I think the reason Paul's hanky does work is that God has a soft spot for the simple. Poor Ephesian Gentiles picking up Paul's napkins may be foolish in their faith, but they're not nearly as cynical as these guys were. And these guys really were cynical. They are charlatans. They are guys using the name of Paul and of Jesus, but without permission. They don't want Jesus. They just want his power. It's like driving without a, with, with a fake driver's license or with an inspi expired inspection. <laughs> I don't think the cops are monitoring the lot. Um, I do have an appointment tomorrow. I'll get it straightened out. A buddy of mine was saying last week how he, was, uh, he has a very personal connection with the president of the school he's attending, but he never mentions it. And that's because, as we all know, we hate name droppers. People who constantly mention famous or powerful people they once bumped into, right, trying to impress you. Now, of course, we almost all do this to some extent sometimes. We do it on, like, job applications and things of that nature. But imagine putting a reference on a job application, and it turns out the guy doesn't know you at all. I mean, that's going to make you look even worse and even less qualified than you already were, probably, right? Now, I've almost never been in a position where anybody would name drop me personally because I just don't have that much credibility. But Jesus' name has real power. We've seen that again and again in Acts, right? But what makes this 
the, the story makes clear is that the name only has power if you have a legitimate right to use it. To paraphrase Jesus, saying, Lord, Lord, will not get you squat if he doesn't know you. I, I've noticed there's a car in the parking lot over there next to my expired <laughs> Honda. Um, over the Christ Lutheran lot. It's, it's there just about every day, I think. There's a, and it has a license plate. And it's the only thing I notice. It says 007 star or something to that effect. I don't know if any of you have ever noticed that one sitting out there. Now, I don't know who owns that car, but there's only one 007 I know. And that's James Bond. And since we no longer have Sean Connery, RIP, my favorite Scott, sorry, Royce, but as far as I'm concerned, the only 007 star I know is Daniel Craig, because Pierce Brosnan doesn't count. And I would love to believe that Daniel Craig keeps his car in the church parking lot here in Allentown at 13th and Hamilton, but I have a sneaking suspicion that this is not the case. <laughs> Which means somebody is out there, right here in our own city, who has the audacity to claim that plate number even though they have no right to it. If I waited by that car to get a glimpse, I would certainly be disappointed. And I would say, Daniel Craig, I know, and Sean Connery, but who art thou? <laughs> but isn't that like the kingdom of God? The institutional church is full of such people, people who are used to invoking Jesus' name, but who don't really know him from Adam. See, anybody can claim the name of Jesus, and that's kind of the whole point of the third commandment. The problem in the third commandment is not so much that people will say God's name in a crass way, although that's also wrong. It's that they take his name in vain. It's the same language when people get married, right? A woman will take her husband's name, at least most do. Uh, maybe that's less common now, but... Others apply God's name to themselves, but they don't know Jesus from Adam. And just saying the name won't work, because he's not a formula or a magic word. A few weeks ago, in Sunday school downstairs, Georgia did the story of the Hittites stealing the ark, and the Israelites have made the mistake of bringing the ark into battle with them, like a good luck charm. And just to prove a point, God lets them lose. And then the ark gets stolen by them. And then the Hittites thought it would be a good luck charm for them. And instead, I think it's the Hittites. Am I getting this wrong? Okay, sounds good then. I'm like the worst. Um, so the Hittites think it's going to be a good luck charm for them. And instead it brings a plague of boils and sores on them. And they end up sending it right on back. And likewise, Jesus is not a good luck charm, and you can't throw his name around and just expect results when he doesn't know you. Because eventually, someone is going to ask the CID, and if you don't legitimately belong to him, then his name won't be there. In the kingdom, we all need a smart ID, proof of who we are, so to speak. Now, in a couple of months, Ken and I are flying to St. Louis for the General Assembly, and they're going to ask to see an ID when we get on the plane. And starting next year, they're going to require the smart ID or else a driver's license plus a passport because you can't fake your way onto the plane. And it's hard to do it, I would think. Just yesterday, I made two church deposits at the bank. The guy started to give me a speech that I needed multiple forms of ID if I'm depositing any cash. But then he saw the slip and realized, oh, we're a church. And he said, oh, never mind. 
<laughs> Amazing how being a church, even on paper, open doors. But in the kingdom of heaven, you need more than that. You can't fake your way in. You can't fool Jesus, and apparently you can't even fool the demons. Because they know their enemy very well, and they're not really that impressed by you. They only flee if the Spirit of Christ resides in you. If you have the right, the authorization to take that name. Otherwise, it's like, it's like using your license plate as proof that you're the real James Bond. Church membership, Bible knowledge, saying the right words, none of that means that you know Jesus. You can know a lot about him without actually knowing him. This is a stern warning to many in the church today. People who take refuge in words but don't know the power behind them. But then another awesome thing happens because right here it looks like the enemy has won a battle, right? He just kicked the crap out of seven guys. He shamed them in front of everyone. And I'll bet the enemy's feeling pretty powerful right now. He's feeling good about himself. He just proved that the name of Jesus is an empty threat on the lips of these simple fools in Ephesus. And look, maybe Paul's the real deal, but there's only one Paul in town. He can't be everywhere at once. We can just keep attacking. We'll keep the whole city in chaos. There ain't enough hankies to go around. We'll eat the Ephesians alive. But what actually happens? Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the devil won the brawl with the sons of Sceva, but it was a pyrrhic victory. What's a pyrrhic victory, you ask? I don't even know if I'm saying it right. What do I know? Some of you young folks are very confused. I'll tell you, because I didn't know either. But I was doing my weekly devotional readings on Wikipedia, <laughs> following all these random links, and it all started with one of the many chain emails I received from Donato every week which led me to looking up some obscure island in the South Atlantic and ended with me reading up on the Boer Wars in South Africa, and I read about a battle, I don't remember what it was called, that ended as a pyrrhic victory for the Dutch Afrikaners over the British. This phrase, pyrrhic victory, being something I had read before without knowing what it meant, resulted in clicking yet another link to find out the definition. And basically, it's a battle that you win, but at such a heavy cost that it's as bad as losing. You win the battle, but in the process make it very much harder to win the war. And in the end, this is a pyrrhic victory for the enemy and a huge coup for the kingdom of God. And it doesn't come from a brilliant speech by Paul or because of the miracles God did through him. Paul doesn't say a word, have you noticed? It happens because the devil won a fist fight. And now, by the end, the very superstitions I was worried about in verse 12 are all melting away. Isn't God good? He works in his own time and he uses his own methods, encouraging, isn't it? 
especially when you hear about things that sound awful lot like demonic activity today. It's not a sign that evil is actually winning. God uses the enemy oftentimes to chase people to himself. Now, we don't know what came of the sons of Sceva. We don't get any further word on them. Maybe they did go and start a band. I don't know. But we know that the dark arts took a nasty hit in Ephesus because of this scene. In other words, the enemy lost the war. And we know this for sure because of the evidence Luke gives us, that they were willing to burn their books. Now, let me say this is not an endorsement of book burning in general. It was a bad idea in Nazi Germany. It's a bad idea when Amazon burns them virtually by blacklisting them. This is different. These guys were burning their own property under no compulsion to show that they were done with this way of life. And scholars disagree on what 50,000 pieces of silver is the equivalent of today, but the point is that the books were not cheap back then. These were a huge investment, and they were willing to burn it all rather than to sell it or give it away. When I was in seminary, I collected every book I could get my hands on, and as my one professor said, every book sale exposes the idolatry of the seminary student. And I can still remember what I spent on most of them. That's sad. I used to look up their value online, and I would feel really good about the bargains. My grandmother would be so proud of me. Of course, Georgia knew how much I spent, so I never got such accolades at my house. But anyway, (laughs) suffice it to say that my library has value. It represents a lot of bargain hunting and a lot of money invested. It's the main reason I can't get rid of them, even though I seldom read them. Right now I'm rereading my Ian Fleming novels and simultaneously reading War and Peace because that's easier than reading theology for me. And yet I cling to my theology library. They represent who I am. They're how I make a living, right, in theory. I want people to think I'm smart and enough, that I'm smart enough to read them all. And I could conceivably sell them and would maybe even be talked into giving them away in a good cause, but I could never burn them. That would hurt too much. Not just really because the theology is so great, though it is, but because I would feel like it had all gone to waste. It would be admitting that I had wasted all that time, all that energy, all that money. It would be admitting that it was all vanity. Now, my my books are all very good. They're written by holy men and women. But if I had invested half of that energy into bad things, I mean, that's what these guys did in Ephesus. And then they didn't just stop doing magic. They burned their books. They burned their identities, essentially their old selves. And they did so in public so that they could never go back and so that no one else could fall into the same trap that they did. There's a lot of lessons to take away from all of this. I'm going to leave you with these summary thoughts. First off, the demons still have power, but not over us who are in Christ. Pretenders and cheaters who take his name in vain will be exposed. It's just a matter of time. And if the enemy isn't fooled, you can be assured that God isn't either. But it is also true that when the demons win, they still lose. It doesn't matter how much of a ruckus the enemy makes, God will still turn it to his glory. You have to remember, the enemy was never so exultant as when Jesus was on the cross. So even when we're losing, we're winning. And the reason for that is that the power is God's. 
It is always God's. Paul's hands and Paul's hankies only have power because God chooses to use them, and he uses them because Paul's ID says Jesus on it. The sons of Sceva didn't have that. They were like 16-year-olds using the fake ID at the liquor store. But the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead resides in Paul, just like he rests on you and I by faith in Christ. And abandoning our old ways can be costly. It's not usually books. It looks different most of the time for most of us, but it feels like when you get rid of these things, it feels like throwing away all the time, all the money, everything you've ever invested in or cared about, even your identity. And it is. But by burning it all, you gain Christ. And that means you gain everything. So no wonder, Luke says, the word of God increased and prevailed mightily in the end. The church is unstoppable. Not because of Paul, but because of the power within us that is unstoppable. And if you want to intimidate the enemy, you've got to have the right credentials. You can't just be a divine name dropper. You have to make sure you know Jesus. And then the enemy will actually see Jesus in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you once again for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the the word we've been hearing since the beginning of the service, Lord, the, the, the call to worship that you know your own and they know you, Lord. What an amazing thing, Lord, but if we're not known, what a scary thing. Yet how reassuring is it, Lord, to know that when we feel most alone, Lord, the fact is that you know us by faith and in Christ. We're not just throwing your name around. It's written on our hearts. Lord, for those of us who believe, I pray that you would give us that assurance, Lord, and that confidence that comes with that power that rests in us. And for those who don't, Lord, I pray that they would seek that out. That they would bow the knee before you, Lord, and confess you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.